0: If you would uh, turn to me to Matthew 3, beginning in verse 13. I will be reading from verse 13 of chapter 3 to Matthew 4, uh, going on to chap- uh, verse 12 there. Uh, this is page 1113 in the Pew Bible, uh, if you want to cut to the chase numerically. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the Word of God. Matthew 3 verse 13 and then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him and John tried to prevent him saying I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me but Jesus answered and said to him permit it now to be permit it to to be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness and so he allowed him When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately out of the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted for forty days and forty nights afterwards, he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they will bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone and Jesus said to him, it is written again you shall not tempt the Lord your God and again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory and he said to them all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me and Jesus said to him, away with you Satan for it is written you shall not worship the Lord your God And him only you shall serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Join me in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for uh, these holy scriptures that you've given to us. Um, I'm struck again and this night, just uh, how sacred they are. Lord, you... You have given them as a gift to us, and we just pray that you would bless us this night as we gather together, together around your word. And I pray, Lord, that all, all of the, the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight and uh, work as you would intend them to, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so here I am. Um, this is a surprise to quite a few people. Uh, maybe even me. It was a couple of weeks ago that Rich uh, asked me, and I won't go into all the details of exactly what, how this came about. Uh, so you're not you're not missing something. Yeah, he was he was going to be preaching throughout, uh, but a series of things just came together and kept pushing in a particular direction, and it was connecting up with people that he knows for the denomination, and uh, adherents who had been in our congregation, uh, and so just in the interest of continuing to build relationships with others uh he asked, reached out and asked me, and he knows that I always keep a sermon in my back pocket in case in case there 's a car wreck on the way to church because um, we 're going to have an instant Quaker meeting with the session at, before the service, like we had once last, right, and uh somebody is going to have to bring the lord 's word to us, so he knew I had something, uh, so he had me dead to rights, and I just thought uh, the Lord would have it i 'm here tonight, as a would as it turns out, Rich really did set up this service uh, this particular sermon last week really well. I mean, uh, this passage is obviously the gold standard passage on temptation that we have in the scriptures. It's the first thing that anybody who's read scripture at all is going to turn to when they're thinking about temptation. And there last week we were talking about Samson. Oh, and then this morning... Again, the church and per- again. And I think that we really do need to take some time and consider this passage. I'm doing so with a lot of trepidation on a couple of counts. Uh, first of all, this passage is very, very familiar to people. And second of all, this passage is extraordinarily complicated. And I've always felt like I've never understood it, which is exactly the reason why I had a sermon on this uh, just to sort of force myself to come to grips with a little bit of what's going on here. There's much that we're not going to touch on tonight. Uh, but uh, I pray that the Lord would make obvious to you the things that are obvious in this passage and then also make clear to you some of the things that maybe aren't so obvious to you. So that is uh, my goal and with the Lord's help, we'll do it. A temptation is really come in hard times nowadays. I really feel that that's the case. Uh couple reasons for this. One that's super obvious is that you can only be tempted if you think you can do something wrong. And that's actually a challenge for a lot of us in our culture, right? That the official skinny is you really can't do anything wrong, and so temptation just is not a thing. Uh, we think, oh, this is this postmodern, post-Christian thing again. Well, I don't know. If you go back into the mid-20th century, uh, like my source for mid-20th century culture, which is uh, Warner Brothers cartoons, I mean, what you'll find there, it, when, when they talk about temptation, they talk about having the person dressed up as Satan on one side and an angel on the other side. You think about that. That's a terrible theology of temptation. That's ridiculous. And yet, nevertheless, that stuff has been preached in our culture way, way, way back. We simply do not understand or come to grips with the nature of temptation. And so this passage is here tonight to reset our focus in this matter. Now, um, I always forget to mention things to those of you who are drawing pictures, most of whom are children, but not entirely. Um, uh, And I I remember tonight, uh, so I have a little note here that says, don't forget the picture thing. Uh, This is a real challenge, right? Because here it is, this is all action involving Jesus, and don't draw pictures of Jesus, right? Um, Instead, what I want you to think about and draw is... um, Imagine people, many people at the base of a mountain. Okay? Think of crowds at the base of a mountain and put yourself in the crowds. And then listen, if you can, to see where this comes up in the sermon. And I might fail, but you might ask your parents, and hopefully they can tell you if you miss it. I hope. Okay, um, this passage uh, is highly commented upon. Uh, there's an outline here and passages on the back side, which will be really important uh, for you to follow what's going on here. Uh, this passage is highly commented upon. There's, there's just so much that's been written on it. Uh, and there's one particular commentator that I would guess has never been quoted here before uh, because his theology is not really well known as being great, uh, but he was actually a politician, and his name is John Milton. And John Milton decided that he was going to write the epic poem for Western culture. It's called Paradise Lost. And it goes on and on and on like epic poems are supposed to. And it was an interesting choice on his part, right? Because this then is the heroic story for Western culture. And what goes on in it? He presents Satan, and he presents Satan in such a light that you read the thing and you spend all the time wondering if you're on his side or not and many people over the years have actually decided that they are on Satan's side. And that was the genius of that poem. I won't endorse all the theology in the poem, but the poem is a remarkable work of poetry. Now, what's less well-known is he also did a follow-up. This was very close to the end of his life, and he had a little short one, a little miniature epic. There were such things in the classical world, and he wrote one. And it was that the first poem was called Paradise Lost, And it presents Satan tempting Adam and Eve in the garden. And then the follow-up, shorter poem, just like the New Testament, presents Paradise Regained. And that's a poem that retells not this passage, but the parallel passage in Luke. So he didn't present the crucifixion. He didn't present... The resurrection. He didn't present the ascension. He didn't present the final judgment. He presented this passage. And the first point, I'm going to start with a couple of obvious points that if all, you miss everything out, these you have to understand. The main point from this passage that Milton so clearly presents is we fail. And God does not. In the garden, they walked with God in a brilliant paradise, and first trial presented, Satan took us down. And Jesus, in the desert, starving to death, went three rounds with him and won. That is the point of this passage. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust man. Trust Jesus Christ. Well, that was quick. Uh, Second point. Another obvious point. Um, There's so much more to learn from this passage in the interaction that goes on. But there's a second obvious point, is that when you see Jesus in this battling temptation, he trusts the word of God over and over and over again. What's crucial about this passage is the centrality of the word of God. And this is so obvious, right? The first thing that he gets hit with is a temptation. And how does he respond? He responds with a passage Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is epigrammatic of the entire interaction. So this whole thing, it's not a hand-to-hand combat. It's not a running race. It's a theological debate. So what you see is the interaction of the words of God coming back and forth. And you see how... God's word is so crucial to this whole thing. It's the paper upon which the entire thing is written. It's the ground upon which everything stands. Many people have used this as a, you know, just a, a glittering, glittering presentation of the authority of scripture. And it is that. But, nevertheless, there's something much more important and obvious going on here. That if you see that point and miss this other one, you're still missing the whole point of the passage. Because with Jesus, it's not just the scriptures that he grew up with. He did grow up with them. He knew them intimately. He had massive portions of them memorized. He sang them a lot. That is true, but there is something else in view. And that something else is in Matthew 3, verse 17. We read it just a minute ago. Matthew 3, verse 17. Suddenly, a voice came from heaven. Saying, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. That is the crux of the word that Jesus is talking about in this thing. You see that? Because each of the temptations, number one and number two particularly, start off with the question, if you are the son of God, what's happening here is exactly like what happened the first time through. Right? Did God really tell you this? And that's what's at, at the crux of this. He had just heard it. And Satan comes to him. Is it true? Is it true? And you see, again, the crux of the question is not do you have the scriptures? Now, did he hear it he heard it the question is do you trust God you see the crux of the whole temptation thing is trust trust that's the second point move on to a third point and this is maybe where it will start getting a little less obvious but I hope that you'll be able to follow um, where this is coming from you know we hear things like man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and what do you think temptation of Jesus right and then what else do you think Mm, that that must be in the Old Testament somewhere right (laughs) I think it's in there somewhere because it's got quotations around it, right? Uh, question is, do you know where? I'm, I'm not going to take a show of hands. You know, we think it's in the Old Testament somewhere. This is what Matthew's audience would think on the back of here. It's from Deuteronomy 8. I'm going to start reading in verse 2, because this is what Jews think when they hear a passage like that. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. And so he humbled you. He allowed you to hunger. He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know That man shall not live by bread alone, but lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your feet swell those forty years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. A little further down, he goes on. This is Moses speaking again. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judges, his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full, when your heart is lifted up and when you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and a thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water to you out of the flinty rock, who led you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you that he might test you to do you good in the end and then you say in your heart my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth guess what we just figured out the first temptation why did the, why did satan start here It's a strange place to start. I mean, who commanded Jesus to fast for 40 days? Jesus very clearly understood that his 40 days in the wilderness were a reenactment of the children of Israel in the desert. And what you see here is Jesus undergoing the temptations of God's people In the desert, repeatedly, and not failing for them. You see, that's what's going on here. And so, if he had done this, if he had decided, you know, I'm the Son of God, I can make this with my own hand, he would have failed. He would have failed exactly in the way that Moses said the people of Israel would fail. And when the Israelites went into the promised land, they did exactly what Moses said they would. They failed again and again and again. And Jesus said, not this time. Okay, that helps set up the second, the second temptation. What on earth is going on with this? I have always been puzzled by this. And so now, suddenly they appear in Jerusalem. They appear up on the temple. And then he suggests, why don't you just throw yourself off to it? What? Like, Why? Uh, and here he's got a passage, of course, right? Because all good temptations have a passage associated with him. So he quotes Psalm 91. That says, well, you can do that, and guess what? God will save you. And then he quotes another passage against him. So what is going on here? Well, one thing that's not going on here is that it's not like, well, okay, uh, Hold it. Where, by the way, is Jesus' passage from? Deuteronomy 6. And so what we have is Psalm 91 on one side and Deuteronomy 6 on the other side. And from this, we learn that the Deuteronomy passages are stronger than the Psalms passages. No, you're supposed to laugh. That's not what we learn. Boy, if he had had Romans, that would have been really good. No, that's not what's going on here. That is not what's going on here. Jesus goes back to Deuteronomy 6 because that's what the conversation is about. It's about in the wilderness for God's people redoing what they failed at. Nothing wrong with Psalm 91, it's just not relevant. Deuteronomy 6, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. The people of Israel are under trial, not the Father. But still, what is going on with this passage? Like, why in the temple, why this? Well, to understand this, again, we'll move on to the next passage. Deuteronomy 6, verses 16 and followed. That's on the back of your handout. Give you the background around what he says. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. When your son asks you in a time to come, saying, what's the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? And then you shall say to your son... We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes. What was the temptation? What was it to tempt the Lord your God? Well, follow. God brought them out of Egypt, He led them into the desert. Now they're in the desert, and they come to a place. And if you've ever been to Nevada, you'd recognize the place because it's everywhere, right? There's a lake. And you can't drink any of it. And what did the Israelites then do? I quit. I want to go back. What is this? This is nuts. This is never going to work. Are you crazy? That is the temptation that Jesus was under. And you think, well, hold up, what's that got to do with the temple in Jerusalem? What, was Jesus not at the temple in Jerusalem? When was Jesus at the temple in Jerusalem? All of the week, leading up to his death, repeatedly, over and over and over again. You see, this is a shortcut. If you just jump off, you can tell if the Father really loves you or not. Because he's going to face this question again later in a more opportune time. Anyway, just get it done. It's a lot quicker jumping off and seeing what happens than it is going back collecting a bunch of disciples who are dumb and perverse like us, fighting with religious leaders who are constantly doing perverted things with God's word, gathering huge crowds that pretend to love him and are just trying to suck food out of him. On and on and on for three years until eventually, as he knew what happened, he would go to Jerusalem And face the test if God was going to deliver it. It's a lot like 40 years in the desert, right? Another passage um, that came to mind here is uh, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verses 11 to 13. So that's also in your handout. I got them in the wrong order. First Corinthians ten. Um, those of you who do navigators will know this passage as the temptation passage, right? Um, I'm not seeing any heads shake, but there's a few of us here, right? You know, right? No temptation has seized you except what is was common man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted above where you're able. But in all, He will provide a way out so that you may bear up under it. That passage. Look at the context of this passage. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning at verse 11 a little earlier. Now all these things happened to the Israelites as examples, referring to exactly this situation. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come for us. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted to be on what you you are able. But with the temptation, will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So, to understand this one more time, Psalm 91 says, God delivers. Deuteronomy 6 says, God delivers slowly. See, we tend to think of temptation as if I can just find the way of escape. It's like a trapdoor in a James Bond movie, right? Boom, choo, boom thump, thud. He lands in the speedboat, and away he's gone. But that's not the way. That most—that's most of the time. That's not the way out of temptation. The way out of temptation is long and hard but it is still the way out of temptation. And Jesus took the hard way. So we won number two. Moving on. Um, next page. Moving on to temptation three. And so temptation three, the devil takes him to a high mountain Oh, here's the picture thing. Takes him to a high mountain and shows him the nations of the world. There they all are, below the mountain. And he says, I see you're, you're pretty good. If you want these, I have them. Just worship me, and I'll give them to you. To which Jesus responds, what does he say? No. You should not worship anyone but the Lord. Again, a quote from where? Deuteronomy 6. There it is Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him, and shall take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods, etc., etc., etc. Now, to frame what's going on here, this seems super obvious, right? Well, to frame what's going on here, follow what we've just been saying. God took Israel out of Egypt. He led them into the desert. They came through Massa. They were tempted to go home. Egypt. And then where did they go? They went to a mountain. A big, high mountain and Moses went up the mountain and if he would turn around there's some clouds in the way but if he would turn around what would he see? God's people all over the base of the mountain. You see what the devil's doing here? You see what he's doing? He's faking that he's God. He's essentially putting himself in God's place on Sinai. And telling Jesus, I get to make the laws. Uh, and of course, Jesus does not go for it. Because Jesus knows, if he didn't before, he certainly does at this stage, that it's a lie. Let's say it's not exactly being transparent. Right? Because what does Jesus say later? John 17, verse 6, and many other places in the Gospel of John. I have manifested your name to the men, the ones whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Right? Follow what this is saying. Where did Jesus get his people from? They were the fathers. Right? The devil's lying. And even further, if you fast pass forward a little bit more of John's writings in Revelation 7, verse 9, after these things, John saw the vision. I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one can number, of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches, in their hands the nations gathered before the Lord. And where did the lamb get these people from? Same place he got the disciples from. They were the lords. And it might have been simpler just to pretend like the devil could carry out what he said. But Jesus did not do it. And it says in the passage, the devil left him, Angels ministered to him. So Psalm 91 was right. It's a little down payment, right? And then what he do? The next passage, he starts going down the road to save his people and do what the Father asked him to do. So, Let me wrap up with three pieces then to take home. Uh, Number one, eh, this is two, trust the Father. We all are going to fail. Jesus will never fail. Trust his promises. When God tells you something, You can trust him. Trust him to provide in the wilderness when you don't think there's a way. And you're tempted to buzz off and say, I'm not doing it. Endure as Jesus did. And finally, let me leave you with uh, Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 2. Uh, This is based on Jesus, as it were, leaving the third temptation. says, Let us lay aside every weight, the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race set out before us. Looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher, of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despised its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's where we are, people of God. Join me in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, I thank you that you sent us, sent us, your son, who endured not just the pain of being here and the pain of the cross, but endured all of the temptations that we face and did so explicitly. Everywhere where we fail, Lord, we know he did not. And we thank you so much for the word that shows us this. We pray, Lord, you'd sow it in our hearts, that we would know it, and trust it, and learn from it. And we thank you, Lord, for the perseverance of your son who carried it out and finished it for us all. And Lord, we pray you'd give us vision. Lord, we pray you give us the vision that he saw and that John saw of your precious people all being gathered in. Thank you so much for this night, for this word you've given. We pray that you would just direct us now to live in the joy and comfort of knowing that we can trust you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, To finish up, uh, Psalm 40, Selection A. Check it, yep. Psalm 40, Selection A. Psalm 40 is a wonderful um, psalm to illustrate the concept of singing the psalms of Jesus. Um, If any psalm reflects the heart of Jesus Christ, the Savior, this one does. And because he was in our place, we as God's people can sing this along with him. So please stand and sing Psalm 40, Selection 8.